Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the associate editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, how's your week been treating you? How's, how's baseball going for you? You know, um, it's going really well. I will say my kids' little league is going really well, too. My 10-year-old's team is so far 2-0 and and undefeated, and they call themselves the Pringles because <laughs> their, their uniforms are yellow, so they look like a Pringles can. <laughs> I love is it when the kids a, call themselves. Is that an official team name or just No, kinda... no, no. Their official team name is some long business name I can't even pronounce. <laughs> but yeah, so they're they're the Pringles. Um, and my seven-year-old team gets started tomorrow, so uh, looking forward to that. So yeah, that's what's happening in my world. I like that a lot. I like that. What what position do your does your kid play? Um, he prides himself on a shortstop because um, he's got great infield instincts and you know one of those high IQ business baseball IQs knows mm-hmm. where all the force outs are you know <laughs> good o- good OPB too so he's a smart player not not the star of the team but like you know one of the leaders. Nice, I, I like it. I I lost the skills for shortstop when I turned about eight or nine maybe. Uh, <laughs> so. So hopefully he, he hangs on to him a little bit longer than He's I did. He's hanging on longer than I did too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so it's it's been a bit of a slow couple of weeks on the news end, which is kind of a good thing. Uh, these these days, this part part of the season, uh, most of the significant news we'll get will be injury news. Unfortunately, we haven't had too many big injuries the last couple weeks. Uh, we have a few minor transactions, a few players that are kind of opening our eyes a little bit. A couple other things we want to talk about. Uh, but I want to open the episode with a question that just kind of popped into my mind uh, yesterday. So, are are you familiar with the game that Diamondbacks outfielder David Peralta had yesterday? I heard it was good. I want to say. <laughs> yeah. So he went. He went. It was that entire Diamondbacks Red series was just insane. It, it was one of those. The way I have a handful of Diamondbacks friends living here in Arizona, and the way one of them described it to me was, wow, that was like the least sweep sweep I've ever seen. Like, that did not feel like a sweep at all. Um, and the last game was just this slugfest, ended up, and I'm pretty sure both teams were in double digits. I don't have the score pulled up right now. Uh, but in that game, David Peralta went five for six with a triple, a homer, seven RBI, just bonkers game. And he entered that game with a 77 WRC plus. He left that game with a 117 WRC plus. Wow. So so my question for you and I didn't tell you about this ahead of time. I'm just kind of spitballing here. We don't have any numbers on this necessarily or anything, but but just kind of what you think. Uh, so Peralta has one more year of team control and the D-backs don't look like they're going to be very good. So maybe he's a trade candidate there. You can kind of see that. How much stock should we put or shouldn't we put in a big game like this? Because games like this kind of remind me of Scooter Jeanette a few years back. Yeah. Where kind of out of nowhere. It, it was a bit of a breakout season, but so much of it was fueled by that one random four-homer game. And after that, he kind of sputtered out and never did anything significant. So is it – obviously we're not saying, oh, he's back to normal because he had this one big game, but – do we throw it out entirely? What, what's your take on that from a from evaluation perspective? The the take is we wait. 
<laughs> a small sample. It's one game, and 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 you know, I'll, I'll, we'll talk a little bit more about valuation updates later. But um, <clears throat> you know, that might may move, maybe move the needle a teeny bit. But it's a 162 game season. He's a regular. He's probably going to play maybe 150 games, and that's one out of 150. So, um, but come the deadline, you know, we've got four months to play with before you know most of the serious trades happen. It's interesting when you compare it to last year. Last year at this time was so weird because the, the season started at the very end of July and the trade deadline came up a month later. So we're almost at that point if you compare it to this season. you know. And so we had to crunch the numbers because we knew the deadline was coming after barely a month, right? And so that might have mattered more last year. This year we can take our time a little bit more and flatten it out over the course of the season because everybody is going to have ups and downs. I mean... You know, every now and then, you know, Josh Bagley had a seven RBI game a year or two ago. It was like, whoa, and then never did it again, you know, so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and this is just kind of your average big game. It's not your, like, what just happened big game, like I was mentioning with uh, with Scooter Jeanette, where four homers, it's only happened, I think, 20 or so times in Major League history, uh, something along those lines. So, like, that's the kind of game that'll really screw up your stat line regardless of what kind of sample size you've got if you're adding <laughs> four home runs and four plate appearances or whatever it is that's going to juice your numbers for sure even if it is june july yeah uh, but, th- but this this change like you said this change is just so drastic because he's only got 75 plate appearances on the season and give him right. 300 more and things will look a little bit more normal yeah, and and I'm just remembering, you know, Luis Castillo of the Reds, his first start was awful. He just didn't have it. He just like he was terrible after one inning and so his so and since then he's been his normal great Luis Castillo Castillo self. And so he's but but because of that one bad first game, he's you know, his numbers are still high. It's taking him a while to kind of get the get them down again to where to where they should be. And that's going to normalize over time cuz these guys have enough of a track record that you, you expect them to. All right, well, we'll keep an eye on David Peralta over the next couple months, see if he has another one of those in him. Um, Now we just have a handful of mildly entertaining trades. (laughs) They they, they vary a little bit here. Uh, Let's start with the one that I think uh, think was fairly interesting, actually, and that's the Diamondbacks acquired outfielder Nick Heath from the Royals. So Heath had been DFA'd. uh, I don't remember who he was DFA'd to make room for, but he had been DFA'd. Uh, and we had his value at 0.2 million. In exchange, they sent the Royals Eduardo Herrera, who's a right-handed pitcher converted from a position player. Uh, I'm trying to check his age here, and I'm not seeing it. Um, I believe he's in his like late 20s, though. Um, and we had him at 0.5 million in trade value. Oh, he is only 21. Interesting. Uh, but he is a he is a converted uh, relief pitcher. So that's. It's one of those minor deals, uh, but Heath actually saw some immediate playing time for the D-backs. They've had a lot of injury problems, and their their roster right now is kind of a mess. I think I think it was yesterday their lineup started with Paven Smith in center field and Wyatt Matheson batting second and Josh Van Meter batting third, and that's a that's a rough look. <laughs> but yeah. uh, so Heath got a little playing time, didn't perform very well, I don't think. Um, just just one of those trades there's not a whole lot to say here just you know he's got speed he hasn't been much of a hitter and sounds like he had a good game or two um but you know he kind of is what he is um i talk about nick heath by the way yeah um yeah and you know for you know a prospect with maybe a little bit of 
teensy upside. So, I mean, look, at this level of valuation, they're all very, you know, fungible, right, in the zeros. So it doesn't really matter. You take a shot with one, take a shot with another one. So whatever. I think uh, I think Eduardo Herrera is mildly interesting just in the sense that any time I see that some guy has been converted, either from pitching to hitting or hitting to pitching, right. it's usually from pitching to hitting. Or, right. excuse me, it's usually from pitching, hitting, hitting to pitching, sorry. Pitching, yeah. Yeah, um, any anytime you see that, it, it kind of raises your eyebrows a little bit, and it, it's interesting. You have no idea whether it's going to be successful or not. I, I don't think there's any data suggesting that those guys are more successful than just true <laughs> true pitching prospects or anything like that. Uh, but wouldn't surprise me entirely to see him kind of carve out a bit of a career, especially since he is so young. Uh, but he is yeah. he, he's got a low value for a reason. He's pretty new to pitching. He's not a top prospect by any means. If, if you need a center fielder to either serve as depth or to fill in for a few games or whatever, you give up a guy like that for it, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to that point, I mean, once in a while you get a Sean Doolittle who converted from a first baseman to a great reliever. Uh, solid career. <clears throat> but, you know, most of the time it's an Anthony Ghost story where he was a former outfielder and he's been trying to make it as a pitcher. But the other problem is your clock runs out because Anthony Ghost is out of options. And so he's bouncing around from team to team because he's not optionable. And so you don't really have a long leash. And that's the trouble with these later conversions is you got to do it fast. Or like Doolittle was an immediate hit as soon as he did it. It was working, you know, but some yeah. other guys take a while. Yeah. So Herrera's got that on his side a little bit as he is only 21. Um, another example there, Kenley Jansen moved from catching to the mound. He's carved right. himself a pretty solid career. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I'm not totally out on goes yet. It, it's hard to it's hard to give up on a guy throwing upper 90s from the left side, especially with as fun of a story as he had. But yeah, he yeah. has just been kind of hopping around the last few years, hasn't? Yeah. I don't I don't believe he's pitched in the majors yet. I might be wrong there. I think it's spring training, but you know. That's yeah. Fun. All right, we got a few more of these minor deals here. Let's just, just go ahead and breeze through them. Edgar Santana, uh, picked up by the Braves in exchange for cash considerations from the Pirates. I think I had a higher perception of Santana just in the back of my mind than his actual value. And I think that's because he was pretty solid for a couple of years, hurt himself, and hasn't been the same since. If he has even... Oh, he had a PED, in, a PED suspension, excuse me. So he's been... <laughs> Just kind of AWOL the last couple of years. Um, and we yeah. have his value fittingly at zero. <laughs> yeah, he went for a buck probably. <laughs> I don't yep. know. Um, you know, the thing about these cash considerations deals, they never really disclose how much the cash is. They're generally small amounts, but you never know. So we just have to guess and presume they're in the ballpark. So I, I think this one's pretty low, though. Kevin Goldstein, uh, back at Fangraphs now. He started up a new podcast a couple months back when he joined, when he joined back at Fangraphs. Um, called Chin Music, and in one of the episodes, he kind of went in depth because he has this front office perspective. He just spent a handful of years mm -hmm. with the Houston Astros. He went in kind of in depth on how exactly the whole cash considerations thing works, and it's essentially the idea that it, I thought it was really interesting. I'll try to remember to link to that episode mm -hmm. in the show notes. Um, but essentially, it's just that there's rules that don't allow you to trade players for cash straight up. So you can do it for cash considerations or a player to be named later, which is what you'll see a lot of the time. And a lot of the time that does just mean cash. Mm -hmm. uh, but they kind of they kind of use a loophole there where they say it's going to be a player to be named later or cash. So then when they go, oh, no, we couldn't agree on a player to be named later by the deadline, I guess it's going to be cash. <laughs> so just, I, I think that's a little fun yeah. little inside baseball thing. 
Um, yeah. But yeah, Santana just just one of those fringe relief depth types, and Atlanta's had some issues in their bullpen for sure. So they'll they'll find him some innings, I'm sure. Okay, next up, the Giants acquired infielder Tyro Estrada from the Yankees in exchange for cash considerations. Uh, Estrada's a little bit more interesting here. He actually was a bit of a prospect for a while, and it seemed like he kind of got beat out eventually by Tyler Wade, who (laughs) I'm not sure Yankees fans are too happy about that. I've seen a little bit of discourse about the whole Tyler Wade, Tyro Estrada, Derek Dietrich Dietrich, (laughs) uh, situation. Tyler Wade had some had some believers during his first couple of years in pinstripes, and it seems like they've kind of left the building. Uh, but we had Estrada at 0.5 million in surplus, so a little bit of value there. And, and the Giants, I feel like, have been good about kind of picking up some of these guys. Um, another mm-hmm. example was uh, Luis Alexander Basabe. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I believe he's injured now. But they right. picked him up off waivers from the White Sox. They picked up Sky Bolt off waivers from mm-hmm. Oakland, and it's just it's just accumulating as much talent as you can, as much potential talent as you can. You'll, you'll pick up 10 of these guys, maybe one of them clicks and he's a platoon bat, and that's, that's you just got him for free, so why not try? Or one of them becomes the next Yastrzemski. I mean, he got right. lucky with that one, man. Um, and so, Solano. Yeah, I mean, back way back when Farhan Zaidi was with Oakland, he discovered Brandon Moss that way. And so he has a track record of, like, sorting through to your point. Like, every 10 of them, one of them pops, you know? So why not take a chance on these guys? And he'll cycle through them. He's been doing this for the last couple of years now. Yeah, I really respect everything they got going over there. They seem like they always have some name to come. Whenever, whenever they have an injury or underperformance or something, the guy they call up is always a name you know. Mm-hmm. And it's he's a name you know because he was like a mid-range prospect two or three years ago and hasn't really done it. And it's like, oh, he's going to get a shot. wonder how this is going to do. And right. a lot of the times it doesn't work out. Sometimes for them it has. And it's it's a good system while you're waiting for some of your actual top talent to make it through, through your farm. Yeah, and while we're on the topic, um, Pittsburgh's been doing that lately too. You'll notice Ben Sherrington's mm-hmm. been doing it, picking up Dustin Fowler, Anthony Alford. Neither one of them worked out. They've both been DFA'd since, but he's cycling through, um, you know, so he's, he's, he's given guys chances and seeing, you know, he's, it's the spaghetti strategies. He used sticks. Mm-hmm. And most recently, uh, I, I believe they cut Fowler for him. They picked up yeah. Kai Tom from the, there you place, go. So yeah. There, yep. They're five just pick outfielder, just kind of shuffling, <laughs> shuffling these guys who might, might do a little something probably won't might as well. If you're the Pittsburgh pirates, what right. else are you going to do in that spot? Right. All right, and then last one I got lined up here. I'm sure there's a couple of these minor transactions I'm missing here, but I'm not sure they're the most riveting thing to go through. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, as as part of that Nick Heath acquisition by the D-backs, they DFA'd right-handed pitcher Jeremy Beasley, and then the Blue Jays went ahead and picked him up for cash um, mm-hmm. and, and moved Tom Hatch to the 60-day injured list. The Blue Jays, that's another team that's had serious <laughs> troubles with their pitching staff. Um, just can't stay healthy. Um, and Beasley doesn't have a ton of big league experience, but you just need depth arms at some point. Uh, I'm pulling up his value right now. Uh, don't wait on me. This might take a second. Go ahead, John. <laughs> 0.5, I believe, uh, was gotcha. the value with Beasley. He's had a, just a teeny bit of upside. Um, you're not sure if he's a starter or reliever. Probably reliever, sure. as most of these guys go. But he was traded a couple years ago for Matt Andreezy. He was another swing man. He was basically mm-hmm. a younger version of him. Um, so, you know, He's been traded twice now, which you could argue, okay, team sees something there. Otherwise, he would have just been, you know, ignored. So um, he's probably a reliever, but it's a small chance he's a back-end starter, which maybe helps a little bit. 
can we talk on that for just a second? Yeah. That idea of getting traded multiple times because I've always, I've always been kind of arguing with myself about this because there's two ways you can look at it, and I don't know if either of them is more correct. It's either, huh, this guy's been traded multiple times. That means multiple teams have given up on him. Mm-hmm. That we should lower his stock, or he's been traded multiple times. That means multiple teams have wanted him. <laughs> we should raise his stock, and and I think it's like a lot of things in the game where. People say something enough times, and it just kind of becomes agreed upon, even though there might not necessarily be anything to back it up. Um, and so people just kind of assume, like, yeah, if it gets traded a lot, then this is what it means. But I'm not yeah. sure it actually does mean anything. Uh, I do recall, uh, I'm racking through my brain right now. I know there's been a couple articles about this and about yeah. how successful prospects that are traded multiple times are. I'm not sure if that applies to a guy like Beasley, who's not really a prospect. <clears throat> Yeah, um, I, I have but... a theory about this. Um, the better prospects, if they're traded a lot, it's a negative sign. Because one thing you want to do is keep your best prospects if you're a GM. And you know them better than anybody else does. Mm-hmm. So so Taylor Trammell, who's been traded a couple of times, former top 50 mm-hmm. prospect, that's probably not good. The Reds traded him. The Padres traded him. It's probably not good. Now, there are, are always ulterior motives, um, you know, um, you know, he was involved in the Bauer trade at one point, and you know, but then he was involved for the for Austin Nola, who's not Bauer. No disrespect to Austin, you know, but that's not a great sign. So for a top prospect like that, it's it's not good. Um, but on the other end of the spectrum, <clears throat> for a guy who's basically otherwise going to be on the waiver wire, which means not many people see anything else. If they're traded a couple times after the DFA, that means, well, okay, he's not zero. We see a little something there. So it's actually a good sign that he's not, you know, just being unclaimed, you know? So I sort of feel like it's, it's both of those things. The name that pops out there to me is uh, Josh Winchowski. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was traded from Toronto to the New York Mets in the Stephen Matz deal, and then a few weeks later he was flipped to the Boston Red Sox. Was it right. the Red Sox or the yeah. Royal? I think it was the Red Sox, yeah, yeah. Um, in that three-team Benintendi deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the kind of guy where I think it was indicative. We, I believe we had him at 0.1. Was he even in the system at the time uh, of the, uh, of the no, Mets trade? No, he was. He wasn't a prospect. In fact, he was Rule 5 eligible and untaken. Mm-hmm. So that's how bad he was. Yeah, but I believe since then some reports have come out that like yeah, there's there's a little bit of something here. Maybe not right. not a top fifteen in the org type guy, but there's there's a little bit of something there, and and it, that's indicative of why would multiple teams want this guy that's that's a non prospect if there isn't yeah, anything there. Exactly. Um, and as just an aside on Trammell, he's he's been kind of. I don't know what analogy to use here. He's been a guy that's kind of screwed with us on both of those occasions. <laughs> uh, we we had initially overestimated him a bit uh, before he was traded. Uh, his stock had fallen because he just wasn't performing, and that was kind of in our early days. We hadn't necessarily locked it in how we were going to adjust player prospects specifically um, for their in-season performance compared to their prospect like ratings. <clears throat> yeah. uh, so his stock has had fallen, and so because of that, the Bauer trade didn't quite line up for us. And then he was, we honestly might've made the same mistake again to an extent. (laughs) 
in that his stock might have fallen a little bit further even, and that's why he was traded to the Mariners for Austin Nola, and we were also a little bit low on Austin Nola because he was this 30-year-old career yeah. minor leaguer who broke out. Whole deal there, but just weird that Tramel was in a couple of those weird trades, and now he's getting a big league opportunity, and as an aside, you got to root for the guy. He's, he seems like a fantastic personality. Um, yeah. And, and he's, he's on a, a surprisingly fun Mariners team right now. Yeah, and he gets high. Always got gets high marks for coachability and attitude mm-hmm. and all those things, you know. Uh, but to your point, um, yes, uh, we've you know those are the learning things we do as you know as a site. We like, oh, how did we get that one wrong? We always learn from it. We take a closer look at it, so the next time it doesn't happen. And and then, but yeah, we downgraded him after the Nola trade because it's like there's no way he could be that as high as we first thought. So yeah. Uh, I, I think I think I think we sort of figured it out now, but there may be yeah. other cases like that. <clears throat> perhaps, and this is just me thinking out loud a little bit. Perhaps there's room on the site for something like that, and you and I can discuss this uh, on our own off the podcast. <laughs> but uh, something of those kind of case study type guys that we can yeah. add into maybe our about or our history section: the yeah. Luis Urias, the Taylor yeah. Trammell, Josh Winkowski, those kind of guys that kind of prove an example of the things that we look for, the ways we've grown over the last few years, and some of the things that we kind of continue to learn and understand about how these Mm -hmm. teams operate and what certain things mean. Exactly. That's a great idea. All right. So I think that's all for those little minor trades. Like I said, a very real possibility I missed one or two. Um, I don't think so. I'm looking at my list. That's it. Okay. (laughs) Well, write us in if I did, and feel free to yell at me. Uh, and, and yell at John, too, because he, he said I didn't miss any either. <laughs> uh, from there, let's go into some more interesting stuff. Uh, we need to talk about a couple guys. And you have, again, you have a full list of these guys. But the big, big one here is we got to talk about Chris Bryant. Uh, so th- the Bryant story, we, we've been talking about him since, God, how long? Probably since the end of last season, probably before that because he's looked like this prime trade target, but over the offseason, his value wasn't there. He was kind of a non-tender candidate almost. He was making a lot of money. His performance in 2020 was very poor, and he hasn't really... He's been good, but he hasn't lived up to the expectations that were kind of set for him after that MVP season in 2016. And so now we fast forward into 2021. The Cubs look like a mess. Nobody on that team is hitting except for one Chris Bryant. He <laughs> is <you> know it? <laughs> going nuts. And I'll, I'll walk that back a little bit. Wilson Contreras is also hitting a ton. Javier Baez is having one of the weirdest seasons in history, but that's <laughs> neither here yeah. nor there. I don't, I don't think he's tradable for many, for many reasons at this point. Um, but Bryant, he's hitting 283, 380, 617 slug, five homers already. And a 165 WRC plus, uh, not not counting play on Friday, which he has three hits and a double. Okay, let's call that 177 WRC plus. Yeah. Uh, this this dude's on fire. He's looking a lot more like the regular Chris Bryant. And the more you look at the numbers, it was really just that one year blip in 2020, which you can mm-hmm. attribute to the shortened season. You can attribute toward the lack of video a lack of motivation on such a mediocre Cubs team. A I think he was a bit there. I think he was a bit banged up too. I think he was, Right, yeah. It's been coming out since then. And his plate discipline which he's always been ever since that rookie year, he's been a pretty solid discipline guy, lots of walks, not too many strikeouts. That took a nosedive in 2020 and those numbers are right back in line with his career numbers uh, this season. Yeah. So it really yeah. does it doesn't just yeah, look his... like a hot month. It looks like he's back. 
Yeah, his on-base percentage is typically about 100 points higher than his average, um, and that's about where it is now, actually. Um, it was a little under that last year. So, I mean, like, it didn't totally go away last year, but, but yeah. I mean, it, it's funny how patterns sort of emerge because, you could you know, the, the knock on him was that he was sort of, you know, in a declining pattern. But to, to your point, he wasn't really. He had 4.8 F4 in 2019, you know, coming off a 2.4 F4 season in, in 2018. So And wasn't that a wrist injury in 2018? Am I yes, making that up? I believe you Zapped are right. Power. Yeah, so, so <clears throat> um, and the way projections with systems work is they take the most recent year and weight it a little bit more strongly, as you would, because that's the more, that's closer, you know, closer to who he is now. Um, so as, so, okay, we're still in very small sample size territory here. Uh, we're not even through the month of April yet, not even through one month of baseball yet. Um, but we did update his value a bit, I think to 6.6 .6 from up to 2.8, because we want to at least acknowledge there's something going on there, right? So that we'll do, you know, we'll continue to update as we go, but, but as the sample sizes get a little bit more meaningful, you know, that could, if he continues this run, then that will definitely change you know, and, and go higher. But the other thing <clears throat> that is a factor in, so he's obviously in his last year before free agency, his walk year. Um, <clears throat> so the value of the draft pick, if he is issued a QO, a qualifying offer, um, it looks more and more likely that, you know, it, that he will be. Like, you could have made the case before the season that uh, it's 50-50. Like, you, if he continued a downward trend, you might have thought, uh, maybe they won't. You know, because they may have, you know, the the qualifying offer salary uh, next year is probably going to be around 19 million, right? It was 18 and a half, I think, um, this year. So, like, do they, do you think the Cubs would want to take the risk of guaranteeing another 19 million salary for him? So there was a question about that, right? And so the probability of that was, let's say, 50-50, which means the net present value of that draft pick was not, like, we typically assign it, if it's 100%, if it's a no-brainer, then you know we're going on the high side and signing a nine million value to that draft pick in in addition to his performance value. <clears throat> but if it's 50-50, we're cutting that in half to four and a half. So my point is, not only is his performance value going to drive up his his trade value, but the draft pick is becoming a little bit more is is going higher as well because it's becoming more certain that he's going to get a QO at the end of the year because the Cubs, you know, if if on paper he's worth you know in the twenties, then it's going to be a no brainer that they would take the risk of a QO for 19. So so that's going to drive it up a little bit as well as time goes on and becomes clear that that's a possibility. So two things are going on there. And one other thing, there's kind of a, typically there's a sliding scale sort of where it, as the season goes on, his everybody's value is pretty likely, especially a player in the last year of his contract, an older player in the last year of his contract. Uh -huh. It's a player's value is likely to decrease the closer you get to the trade deadline because you're getting less team control of him. If a team trades for Bryant right now, they get five-ish months of him. If they trade for him in on July 30th, which uh, I wanted to note that as well, the trade deadline's on July 30th this year, not the 31st. Mm -hmm. um, but if they trade for him on July 30th, then they're only getting two months of him plus the postseason, maybe, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And so that's just less value. But in this case... It, we might see this value remain stagnant or even potentially increase. So potentially. here's the, so here, no, here's the other weird thing about it. So, you know, trade value is mostly based on surplus, right? Now, if you're making a lot of money, if you've got a high salary, then as time goes on, 
it's actually going to improve your, you know, that, that number's going to go down fast, right? If he's making 19 million, it's going down roughly 3 million a month, right? And if his performance is increasing, then the ratio, it doesn't go down that much, right? Because, you know, you're paying less and less for him if you're going to acquire him on July 30th, right? You're only going to pay 6 million for him. I'll get to this in the next topic as well. But um, so, so it's not going to go down as much as you think. Whereas <clears throat> if they're not on much of it, if it's on a very low salary, then you don't see that difference as much. Um, so, you know, the, the performance, you know, is the value of time affects the performance more than the salary. In Brian's case, it'd be vice versa, if that makes sense. And, and then there's, you mentioned before, the postseason element there. Yeah. Where you're, the, the number for his salary continues to tick down, and it's over that six-month six time span, uh, but he does not earn that salary in the playoffs. The playoffs come from that league-wide right. uh, playoff pool. Right. And so they won't have to – it's an acquiring team here that wants Bryant for the stretch run. I'm thinking a team like the Mets maybe. Mm-hmm. They're not going to need him – or excuse me, they're not going to need to pay him directly in the pay, in the playoffs. They're getting all of that value essentially for free. Yeah, it's a free uh, third month. It's the October bonus, as we, as we call it. Yeah. <clears throat> so that affects it as well. So along those lines, uh, but maybe a slightly different situation here – is Max Scherzer with the Washington Nationals. So the Cubs, they've been, they were kind of anticipated to be kind of middle of the pack. I mean, probably not as bad as they have been. Their offense just hasn't really clicked much. I I think they scored like 12 runs today, though, as I'm saying that. (laughs) Um, But the Nationals have just been wholly disappointing this year. Uh, They had their season started pretty pretty rocky with some COVID shutdowns. Uh, They had... I believe Juan Soto's on the injured list now. I think it's a shoulder injury, hamstring, shoulder, shoulder. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so it's just been an abysmal start for them. But Max Scherzer's rolling again. He had a bit of a weird season last year. He's had some home run issues the last couple of years. And he is still having some of those home run issues. But strikeouts are up. Walks are down. He's looking really good. 180 ERA at the time through his first four starts. It looks like he's Max Scherzer, and which which is pretty impressive for a 36-year-old. Uh, but the question that brings is there aren't a ton of top pitchers that are going to be available at this deadline. Does Max Scherzer become an incredibly attractive option for a team like maybe the Yankees or Astros? And I know what you're going to say immediately. <laughs> the luxury tax. That's a huge mm-hmm. problem for both of those teams. Scherzer's mm-hmm. contract, he, you have, in, in the system, we have him here at $23 million in salary. I know his contract's kind of weird with the deferrals and everything. Um, but that number just blows Houston or New York way past the luxury tax. So they'd have to get pretty creative to make it happen. Yeah. But okay. those are two teams that just seem like they're in desperate need of an ace like this. Scherzer feels like he fits that kind of Verlanderish mold for Houston and the Yankees. I don't think we can say enough about how much of a mess they've been to start the season. Uh, so yeah, and, and obviously not just limiting it to those two teams, but just in general, he could be he could be the cream of the crop at the deadline. Yeah. So um, I have a lot to say about this. I'll probably write an article about it next week. Um, so um, yeah, it's complicated. Um, so first of all, he has 10 and five rights, right? With the nationals. So it's effectively a no trade, um, unless so he has to approve any trade, 
right? So it's up to Max, but basically if he wanted to be traded to a contender, if the Nationals fall off of it, and I think they will, then he might be, you know, the type of competitive guy that says, yeah, I'll go to a contender for the remainder of my, you know, contract year here. Um, by the way, I think the Nationals are dying for a rebuild. They've got a terrible farm. They are basically just three stars and scrubs. They're, they're Soto, Trey Turner, and Scherzer. And then... Yeah, not much else, right? Just role yeah. players after that, you know. Tip, it's like stars and scrubs does usually not make a good playoff team, right? Because you're, just, you know, you need a, a more balanced team than that. So it's unlikely that um, they're going to be in the mix in July. It's just me predicting it. Um, but now to Scherzer's contract, that's the complicated thing. <clears throat> he's on paper, his salary is thirty-five million a year. In reality, he's not actually getting paid that because the Nationals, have de- they're the king of deferrals. They have deferred a whole bunch of his money and up through like 2028. So, but our friends at Cots Baseball Contracts have kind of crunched the numbers and they said the present, the net present value of 2021 is 27, <clears throat> you know, because because the deferrals and time value money. So, so, so now that we're about a month through, we've got it down to about 23. So that's what we're going with. In reality, any team that traded for Scherzer could negotiate whatever because he's got a whole bunch of other back pay from previous years that he still owed as well. So like, it's just remind we were, this is by the way, another learning experience because we had factored that into Zach Greinke two years ago. And it turns out that, that um, when he was traded to the Astros, the Astros were only wanted, wanting to uh, focus on the years that they would have him, not the previous years that he was still owed money for. So I'm using that kind of as a default assumption saying, okay, if any team trades for him, they would only, you know, factor in whatever he's on paper owed for 2021. But now because some of that is deferred, they've still got to negotiate it. So it's very weird, very complicated, but we're at least going with this number for now. And by the way, because we think Scherz is a trade candidate, um, I've removed his um, none status in the sort of, you know, likelihood of being traded. So he's now at a medium. So now he's very tradable. So you're seeing trade proposals on our site with him in it, which is, I think, fun. Um, so anyway, <clears throat> long story short, um, a lot of people think, oh, my God, Max Scherzer, he's the one. And I agree with you because, you know, he's got everything. He's, he's pitching well now. Great track record, future Hall of Famer. Awesome in October. He, you know. It's what they were saying was about about uh, Bumgarner two years ago, but probably more so because Bumgarner was already sort of falling off a bit, you know. But we, of course, he had still that great reputation for being a, a playoff pitcher. Uh, but Scherzer has that reputation as well, and he's also not falling off the map. Uh, he's still pl- pitching well, so even though he's about to turn, he's 36 and I'm probably going to be 37 soon. So. I can see his attractiveness for a number of teams. And he also made the point that there's a supply demand issue here. Like it's hard to think of other rental pitchers who are in obvious situations on losing teams, you know, that would be available because right now it's too early to tell others will probably emerge as, you know, like the giants have a bunch of them, you know, if they fall off, then maybe some of those guys will become available. Who knows? Um, John Gray of the Rockies, which we can talk about in a moment, um, but not as good as Scherzer, obviously. So, so, I can see him very being very attractive. Um, you're not going to get a ton, though. I don't think you know if you absorb some of this salary, unless the Nationals just say, you know what, we're just going to eat the whole salary, and then you're going to get a, you know, then you're looking at giving up some serious uh, prospect value for him, mm-hmm. um, and that's a potential outcome because maybe nobody wants to deal with the headache of all those deferrals. So yeah. I could see that happening. 
<laughs> and even at the moment, let's say let's say they made a trade for they traded Scherzer today, and the Nationals ate even half of his salary. If they got one prospect back, or even just one main centerpiece and a couple lottery tickets, that prospect would be one of their most valuable. Yeah, exactly. That's how that's how weak their arm <clears throat> is right now. Uh, yeah, we, I don't believe we mentioned this yet. We have Scherzer at ten and a half million in yeah. surplus in median trade value, and so if if you're saying they're eating ten mil of his salary, then you're looking at. 20 mil in value and yep. i believe their highest prospect just off the top of my head is in like the mid mid to high teens if you're not or, counting a carter keeper yeah yeah exactly and eric longenhagen of fangraphs just did the uh, nationals uh, prospect list this week and uh, somebody on twitter said is it bad that their top prospect would if he were on the rays would be like their number 13 <laughs> you know like yeah. <laughs> like their top prospect is a 45 plus on longenhagen scale it's not even a 50 you know and that's yeah. and it goes and then there's a good drop off from there even so it's like oh that's a bad form <clears throat> and so, yeah, to the nationals <laughs> yeah to the nationals credit they have a decent track record of getting a little bit more value out of guys than they necessarily should, but they also have their share of flops. They got the Eric Fetties and Lucas Giolitos of the world who yeah. just couldn't do anything with the Nats. Um, so and, and ma- we'll maybe see. that's... And Keyboom is not looking great right now. Yeah, that <clears throat> that's unfortunate. Uh, he's yeah. really following that Luis Urias, Franklin Barreto kind of path right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, he had LASIK eye surgery, apparently, in the off season, and people thought it would fix him, and then he went into spring training and still couldn't hit. So, I I still think there's – I'm not writing the Nationals off quite yet. Maybe there's a little bias there. I have a cousin who's a big Nationals fan. But <laughs> I, I, I still squint and see, you know, they get Soto healthy. They get Strasburg healthy. They get Corbin figured out. And then maybe they mm-hmm. make a trade for Bryant and push all their chips in this last season because – what the heck else are they going to do? Are they going to waste the rest of Juan Soto's career? I, I don't know. They've always been a team that errs on the side of aggression. So Yeah, it's true. It's true. And and, and they are doing well in that market as well. So they, they feel like they have a fan base that wants them, you know, that will come out for them, that wants a winner. In other words, a more consistent winner. So there is that. Uh, yeah, it is a tough call because if they do decide to rebuild, what do you do with Soto and Turner? Turner's only got one year yeah. after this, right? So mm-hmm. you either extend him... And you got to extend Soto. I think he's only what 22, um, you know. But who knows if he will? Um, but you figure you build around Soto, you rebuild the rest of the team. It'll take a couple of years. But even if that happens, Soto would be 25, 26 when you're competitive again. So sure. <laughs> oh, silly. <laughs> Soto is just silly. I know. You got to uh, give him like a Tatis level contract, of course. You know. Maybe but, tack uh, another five years onto it. Even. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, get get well soon, Juan Soto. We miss you. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so those are the the two biggest names uh, I wanted to talk about. Just to kind of mention that yes, we we know what's going on with those two guys too. We have our eyes on them. We're gonna keep both of them under a microscope and follow their performance, follow their team's performance in the months leading up to the deadline. I know you have a list of a handful of other guys. I don't know if you want to read off the whole yeah, list. Yeah. So I don't know if you want to, yeah, go ahead and. Go ahead I, I just want to make here. a general general public so a general comment. So we talked earlier. It's a small sample size so far. We're not even through one month of baseball, but some trends are emerging. I mean, there's still a lot of volatility in these stats that we follow. Um, so typically, we wouldn't do an update on our valuations until like the end of May. Um, but um, we're starting a little bit early this year because some things are becoming evident, like Chris Bryant. Um, so and 
and also because you know what our site is for fun so we don't want to just ignore things and let them you know mm -hmm. default to the the preseason so we are going to update you know do a little bit more updates at the end of april that said some things are still too small uh, of a sample like relievers pretty much you know you what you appeared in six innings I, i'm sorry that's not enough you know um... unless there's an injury or <laughs> yeah right velocity right. or right literally exactly. can't throw a strike one of those like super noticeable things but if a guy's just got a 450 era because he's only pitched six times like yeah I I, exactly right um you know and then like for starters you know okay you've had four starts all right something if something's noticeably different one way or the other from the preseason projections, we'll we'll take it we'll take into account for that. So, Matthew Boy has not given up the home runs like he used to. That was his big yeah. sort of thing, and he's looking great. So I gotta say, we updated him a little bit. Um, yeah. I'm noticing that. Perhaps um, uh, one of the beneficiaries of the weird baseball. Although I think the jury's still out on how exactly the new baseball works and right. whether it does actually suppress homers. There's been a whole lot of research on that in the last week or two. I'm I'm honestly still trying <clears> to comb <throat> through it myself. Yep. Uh, but maybe. <laughs> and yep. if not, more power to you, Matt, for for getting it done on your own. Yeah, and, and speaking of trade candidates, I mean, here's another one. Yeah. Um, if he continues avoiding the home run which has been his bugaboo and pitching like he has been i mean yeah he's got he'll his value will continue to go up um corbin burns was already high but i mean the man is just ridiculous right now <laughs> uh, my god i just have to acknowledge that um joe musgrove uh pat ourselves on the back because we were high yep. on musgrove when he was traded because we saw a breakout and i wasn't i was surprised that he didn't you know the pittsburgh can get more from him and now he's pitching like just we like we thought he's pitching like he should have been 35 instead of 25 or whatever so um yeah and he might continue to go up and not just a no hitter but even every outing has been good yeah. and, um, and to be entirely <laughs> fair there we weren't the only ones in on him <laughs> there, there was a little bit of sleeper yeah, buzz there yeah, he, was, he was a little bit along the uh along the garrett cole track there where it's like uh, maybe this guy just needs to get out of pittsburgh and look yeah. what's happening here again three or four starts but it's pretty it's pretty drastic here the difference yeah and he's a san diego native so maybe he just loves being at home and, and it's he's, and he's, he's got an actual defense behind him yeah playing yeah. for a team that might win more than 20 or 30 games <laughs> there's, there's a whole lot going right for him yeah um another guy who's shown something different this year is carlos Rodon. speaking of no hitters um like he was pretty much written off he was a dfa basically and um you know he was done <laughs> yeah there, he just had shown nothing in the last couple of years and suddenly he's showing like he's a different pitcher so yeah. we we see that and so it's still a small sample size but you know he's going to start to climb a little bit in value and that's one of those post-injury guys that we've mentioned before where you know some guys it takes them a couple of years to build up that arm strength again mm -hmm. you saw in that almost perfect game eventual no hitter that he was chucking 99 in the ninth inning out there and he was topping out like 92 93 a couple years back so yeah one of the one of those fun stories and one of those extreme circumstances where it's like very obvious that there is a difference here his fastball is way up that's not smoke and mirrors at least at this point right okay and then another sort of perhaps under the radar buzz buzz guy that's that seemed performing really well as a starter is trevor rogers the marlins um now he was considered uh not their top prospect. He's not Sixto Sanchez, but there were some eyes on him last year when he was just coming up. Um, and now he seems to have turned the corner. Like he's 
he's really pitching well, and so we've bumped him up a little bit as well. And you know, he's still a rookie, so we'll see. But we're being careful now. Now, you know, obviously we take our time with um, prospects who are in transition to their major league careers. We're blending their prospect value with their major league number. And as the major league goes up, as time goes on, that will start to take more precedent over the prospect value. But right now it's a blend. And so that keeps it somewhat conservative. So he's not like jumping too high yet, but we're keeping an eye on that. Yeah, I, I will take a tiny bit of, pre- of credit for Trevor Rogers. I don't know okay. if I mentioned him on the podcast, but I ha- I did like him a lot <laughs> heading into this season. I. I like the Marlins a little bit, and so yeah. I, I was tracking him, and he had a pretty big spring, and I was like, hmm, th- this might be something, and he, he's always going to have a little bit of command issues, but right now he's missing enough bats to make it work. And he's going to stand out from the joke of, can you tell the difference between Trevor Rogers, Trevor Richards, and Trevor Williams? A year and, ago? And then, <laughs> and then Taylor Rogers and Tyler Rogers. Yeah. And... <laughs> and... Yeah, he's okay. Now we know you're Trevor <laughs> Rogers. Um, and I just got to say, Matt Olson also off to a heck of a start. I mean, here's a guy who basically just had power and some on-base percentage, uh, but always was a low-average guy, and he seems to be hitting to all fields now. He's craftier. It's only been not quite a month, but, but man, he's on fire. <clears throat> He's one of those guys, you look at the Savant page, and it's it's just all red. <laughs> He's oh, in yeah. 80th, 90th percentile in everything, almost. <laughs> yeah. Except sprint speed. He's never going to quite no. make it there. Uh, but, yeah, he's, he's crushing the ball. Two more hits tonight as of as of the time of recording. Yeah. And it's, and, it's and fun to watch. It is. It's fun to see him, like, when, when he gets shifted on, as he always is, and then he just pokes it to left field. There's nobody. And so he's starting Before to become Or he smarter. hits it 450 over the shift. <laughs> yeah, and right. The Joey Gallo <laughs> special. <laughs> yeah, right. So um, he seems to be peaking, um, and he's a right, about the right age for that. Okay. Um, shifting to the – that was just a quick list of risers. Now a quick list of fallers. You mentioned Javier Baez. <sighs> <laughs> Oh, that plate, <laughs> I saw a stat that his plate, I'm going to try and pull this up right now. I, I'm doing a lot of this today on the podcast. I apologize for not having all my little factoids ready to go from the get-go, uh, but I saw a stat. Uh, I'm going to work to pull it up here. I'll, I'll let you banter a little bit then, but it was something about along the yeah. lines of him having worse plate discipline than pitchers, <laughs> than yeah, collective and, pitchers hitting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, so basically he's just like, uh, you know, slugging for the moon everything goes up and he's he's swinging at everything right and so his strikeout rate has always been high and his walk rate has always been low so that's been an issue but he has in the past hit enough to kind of overcome that and it's just all falling apart for him now now occasionally he does hit hit a, hit a dinger he's he's got five of them this year but it's sort of empty power right um he's got a 92 uh, wrc plus coming off of 57 last year so unlike bryant where last year looks like an anomaly so far, Bias does not look like him. he's still struggling. He still seems lost at the plate. And he's also in his walk year. Now, this is the other thing where you thought he might have been a candidate for QO last year. Um, and so there was a little bit of net present value of a draft pick, you know, associated with his value. The more he struggles, the more that seems like it's unlikely that he will be QO'd. You know, to say nothing of what, what kind of free agent contract he's going to get. So, but so anyway, so that's... Um, that's going to affect his value as well if this keeps up. So, um, yeah, we're watching that one closely. Yeah, I got this tweet here. This is from Jeremy Frank, MLB Random Stats on Twitter. Uh, and this was from the 21st, so that's Wednesday evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, Javier Baez at that point had a 45.6% K rate, a 1.5% walk rate, a 50.4% contact rate, and a 40.9% chase rate. 
Meanwhile, MLB pitchers as a whole, and this is after the entire 2020 season when no pitchers hit, uh, they had at that point a 47.3% K rate, so a couple points higher than Javi, a 3.0% walk rate, twice as high as Baez, a 64.4% contact rate, 14% higher than Baez, and a 31.9% chase rate, 9% lower than Baez. Although, (laughs) at the time, Baez had a 730 OPS, 29 points higher than the MLB average for hitters, despite having plate discipline worse than a pitcher. And for whatever it's worth, he went three for five today with a homer and only one strikeout, dropping his strikeout rate all the way down to 44.9. Okay, so anything over 40 is not going to cut at the MLB level, so he's got to get that down. Especially if it's over 40 with a walk rate right around one percent it's at one point that's usually with these big strikeout guys you get a gallo where he's going to strike out 37 percent of the time and also walk 14 percent of the time so he can at least contribute in some other way but this is this is something (laughs) yeah that's three true outcomes tto this is two true outcomes it's either a strikeout or a you know or a home run um anyway we've got his value down to 2.3 um you know he's he's owed about nine and a half million from this point on the season so you know, if you were thinking about trading for him, you want to pay him nine and a half million on top of a forty-four percent strikeout rate. It's not going to be much. Um, and like I said, and even if you're, even if you're thinking that's a little bit low for him because oh, he's always been a bad disciplined guy. It's just a especially bad month, whatever. But even if you think the value itself is low, are you going to trade for a guy like this right now? Do you want yeah. your team to pick up a guy who is striking out almost half the time and not really doing a whole lot other than putting the ball out of the park? <clears throat> the, the glove is great, but but just everything considered, are you really giving up significant assets for a guy like this right now? Yeah, I mean, even in theory, you know, we've talked about the Reds need a shortstop, the A's could yeah. use an upgrade to shortstop. You know, would you trade for him right now? You would you consider him an upgrade from those guys? I'm not sure I would. Um, you know. Um, but now the Cubs have been saying behind the scenes, Javi's working on it. He's working on it. So, um, maybe he is, maybe he's had a breakout today. We'll see. We'll give him some more time. Um, but it's it's not looking great so far. The concerning thing there though, is that it's not like it's, this is an extreme obviously, but he's never been a plate disciplined guy. He's always struck out a ton. He's never walked much. So he's working on it, but hasn't he? Has he just not been working on it the last seven years of his career? <laughs> He's just been kind of right. letting it fly because it's been kind of... I guess that's possible. He, he sees I'm hitting well enough with my current approach. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. But you'd have to think at some point in there, whether it's in the minor leagues or in the big leagues during some of those first few seasons when he wasn't really established as a star yet, you have to think at some point in there he was trying to work on his discipline and it obviously never happened. Why is it going to happen now? Um, yeah. uh, again, I... He's one of the most, when he's on, he's Fernando Tatis levels of fun. Just so yeah, much fun he, to watch. Certainly, certainly, he's he's charismatic, he's a star. But, I mean, like, some guys are just like, oh, I can hit my way out of it because they're so confident in their in their bat speed. Franklin Barreto was another one who never obviously actually got to the, the Baez level, but, but he was swinging at everything, too, because he had bat speed and he thought he could hit everything. And, and Baez clearly has had a track record of doing that anyway. Um, so, all right, so... We'll keep an eye on Baez. Um, Gleyber Torres is another guy who's been struggling. Um, he's in the fishbowl of New York, so everybody wants to trade him because he's been, you know, you know, bad defensively at shortstop. But you would think, 
well, at least he can make up for it offensively, but he hasn't been doing much of that either. Um, he had a three-hit game the other night, but before that, he's been pretty terrible. So we did drop his value down in the 50s. Um, now, still pretty high because he's got the track record and a lot going for him. So we're not, you know, New York media, if you believe them, would just, you know, oh, man, send him down to the minor, DFA him. Like, no, 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 don't go crazy. <laughs> he's still a very talented hitter. Um, he's probably, you know, not a shortstop. He's probably a second baseman, but even so... Um, you know, so we're keeping a sort of a steady eye on it, seeing how it goes. It's another guy struggling. Um, I, I never root for guys like that to fail, but there <clears> is something a little bit satisfying about all those, uh, from a West Coast perspective, <laughs> a little bit satisfying about all those Yankees fans that spent all offseason saying they wouldn't trade Glaber Torres for Luis Castillo. Now seeing that if they could have, <laughs> they probably should have. <laughs> yeah, um... And like I said, I think on the last podcast, so Joel Sherman wrote a piece that um, they uh, should just trade him straight up for Trevor Story. At the time the piece was written, we had um, Torres in the 70s, and we have Story around 30. So that would seem like a huge overpay. As time goes on, maybe it's not as huge overpay as I first thought. So, uh, But it still seems like it would be, because you've got four years yeah. of Torres. Anyway, we'll talk about Story more. Um, just to finish my list, uh, J.P. Crawford is struggling, speaking of shortstops. Um so he's gone down a little bit. Um, Lourdes Gurriel Jr. is struggling, and Danny Jansen, two Blue Jays players. Now, Blue Jays have a very talented young lineup. These two guys are not hitting at all. Um, so they're, they've been dinged uh, on our site. And um, I just want to talk for a moment about the Nelson Lamette of the Padres. Um, and the reason is because the poor guys had a struggling with an arm injury, which emerged late last year. They thought, okay, I'm just gonna—he's he's just gonna wait through it, you know. Um, not gonna have Tommy John surgery, but they tried it again. They had—he pulled him after like two innings. They're still saying now he's on the 10-day IL again. They're still saying, oh, he's not gonna have Tommy John. He's gonna come back in, 10, you know, in a week or two. I mean, like, I'm, if you're an acquiring team, would you want to take a chance on Lamet, given that shaky? Like, I'm just really afraid of I, – I don't know his injury. I, I'm not a doctor. I just know that teams are not going to trade for a guy who's just, you know, probably going to need TJ and be out for a year and a half. It just – that's the writing on the wall, and nobody's going to touch that. So that's yeah. why we have to drop him. Nice. <clears throat> yeah, that's perfectly fair. You beat me to Lament a couple of years back. <laughs> I, I remember he was one of those first guys where I was like, are we sure about this value? And you were like, yep. He, yep. Look again. He's a little better than you think. and you know what he was and he turned into one of my favorite pitchers to watch so this is really really unfortunate i was so disappointed to see him get pulled early in his uh, in his last start with that elbow injury or yeah and, tightness and or whatever they ca- characterized it as yeah and he's keep in mind he's very fastball dependent for a starter he's almost all fastball he's almost all heat and yeah. if he can't if he's having arm trouble and he can't do that then what do you got you got to have you got to do something you know, he's he probably needs Tommy John surgery again. I'm not a doctor, but I'm not touching that if I'm another team. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, one last <clears throat> point here, uh, going back to those hitters. Common trend there. Every one of those guys you mentioned, already even when they were on when they were on when they were performing well, already poor plate discipline guys. Mm-hmm. And so that just kind of goes to show. Yes, guys can succeed with that, but not forever. Mm-hmm. It's it's one of the least. Once they already have a floor or excuse me, not a floor. If they have a ceiling like Baez, 
where his best plate discipline year was probably just glancing at the numbers here, probably that 2017, 2018, 2019, that kind of stretch where he was striking out about 26, 27% of the time, walking about 5% of the time. If that's as good as it gets from you, if you even dip a little bit from that, you're in big trouble. Yeah. And yeah. he's dipped a lot from that. So yeah, that's, that's just an inherent <laughs> risk to keep in mind with some of these guys. Obviously there are guys who can succeed. Baez had a very, strong career up to this point and I, I, I don't think either of us are writing him off completely but all of those guys Lourdes Gurriel is another one um, JP Crawford's never been huge on the plate discipline although he, he does walk a fair bit he's just one of those guys that doesn't necessarily have the thump to yeah. to maintain that walk rate maybe so maybe a bit of a different case there but it, it's it's something to look out for just from a general perspective of evaluating players, maybe even not from, not necessarily even from a trade value perspective, just of a, how's this guy going to perform going forward kind of perspective. It's discipline matters in today's game a lot that with, with the way that pitchers are evolving and throwing harder and nastier stuff, being able to lay off it is, is much more important than it ever has been. Uh, you said it, man. Absolutely. That has been the key differential. I mean, you know, going back to a guy like Max Muncy, who, um, yeah, I've always thought, um, and maybe this is a pet theory, but you know what the A's saw of him before they dropped him was he had he was always a great plate discipline guy. He would always take a walk, always on base, um, and at least had that. And there was a correlation. I've seen some studies about the correlation between that guys with great eyes and their success rate is much much higher than free swingers. And you know, and you know, it's just proven itself out again and again. You know, guys who can take a walk generally do well. Guys who can't. No. So, uh, yeah, I, I tell my kid that. So. <laughs> so you got him going strong. Oh, my I God. He goes up that. there take, taking a walk almost every time because, you know, 10-year-olds can't throw strikes very often. So <laughs> he's, he's got a high OPP. Anyway, um, so one more point about Javier Baez. Um, so he's obviously part of the great free agent uh, shortstop class coming up at the end of this year, which had included Lindor. Now he's been uh, – Take care of so it really is down to Corey Seager, Carlos Correa, Trevor Story, and Javier Baez. Of those four, you know, I think three of them are going to get big contracts. I'm not sure about Baez at this point if he keeps this up, you know, and he could maybe be sort of an off an afterthought. Like, yeah, I don't know. Like, would you want to give him a big multi year contract given this? Uh, yeah, at this point, I'm not going anywhere near him, obviously. <laughs> obviously. I, I don't expect him to to maintain a 45% strikeout rate for 162 games. Yeah. But even just coming from where he is now, the way he's looked lately, knowing that at any time going forward, he could have a month like this or worse as he ages. That's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. I, I'm sure this warrants an article or a longer podcast discussion down the line, but maybe, yeah. maybe as a transition into our next topic of Trevor's story, Mm-hmm. Uh, how would you rank those four guys at, at this stage, just kind of off the cuff, and <clears throat> what kind of contract you'd expect for them? Because I, I think it's pretty clearly we got Baez at the bottom. Yeah. Um, um, for <clears throat> for me, I... for me, Correa's next to the bottom because of the back stuff, and he's been a little bit less consistent than the other two guys. But I'm right. I'm interested to hear kind of your order of the four. Yeah, I think Corey Seager is the top of the list um, because he's 26, um, and he's fantastic hitting. Um, he hasn't even hit his prime yet, I don't think. Um, so the way I sort of see it is, if you use Lindor as kind of a benchmark, he got, what, 341 uh, through his age 37 season. So if you sort of mocked it up through their age 37 season or thereabouts and you crunch the numbers, um, 
you know, I think Seager could do that. Seager could do very well. He's not, I don't think he's going to get Lindor money, um, but maybe like in the low threes, maybe 320. Um, Trevor Story could give him a run for his money. I think he'll be, you know, in the twos. <clears throat> um, you know, and then Correa for the reason you mentioned, because he's got the the back issue and he's never been totally reliable or durable. He's a fantastic talent, obviously, um, but you don't know what you're going to get durability-wise. So he maybe get... I don't know if teams are going to pony up for that much money over that many years for him. Um, I think the Astros did give him an offer, but it was a little low, and it was low. But it showed that they were not as confident. I mean, it's a you know it's a negotiation, so it's a, their first offer. But I don't know if they're going to go too high, you know, or other teams will either. So it's definitely Seager for me. It's Seager story, and then a gap, and then Korea, and then a big gap, and it's bias. <clears throat> I'm with you, but I think I have Story and Seager flipped. I, I think Seager is surprisingly underrated. Mm-hmm. As a he's he's a phenomenal hitter. I think the year that he missed uh, was that Tommy John, I believe. Mm-hmm. But he, yeah, yeah I, I believe the year that he missed there kind of hurt his public perception a little bit, and he struggled a little bit initially coming back from that. Uh, but he's an excellent hitter. He's just always had this concern of is he going to stick at shortstop? And I think he has stuck at shortstop. Not necessarily because, oh, he developed into a fine defensive shortstop, but because he's been about average-ish, and the Dodgers shift well, and they can they can kind of make it work with some of the talent around him to where it's yeah. not that big of a deal if he isn't right. the best shortstop. Right. So you're figuring at some point in that contract he's shifting to third base, second base, first base, yeah, DH, absolutely. eventually. Yeah, right. Whereas Trevor Story, uh, I think there's there's no debate there that he's one of the best defensive shortstop in the game, plus a great hitter, plus he can run. And so maybe there's a concern there about future injury potential, because if a guy's going all out all the time, just increases your likelihood of, of injuries, whether that is on defense or on the base paths. But I think it gives you some more flexibility. It gives you more, you can trust story to man shortstop for another three, four five years. Yeah. Uh, and then maybe shift and then still probably be an above average third baseman. Whereas with Seager, not a whole lot to fall from there. And I think they're at least comparable enough as hitters that I give story the slight edge, but uh, I believe story is older than, than Seager. So that's a factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Story has kind of the Coors thing, mm-hmm. but I don't know if that's necessarily being considered as much anymore as it might have 15, mm-hmm. 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm going to be fascinated to see what happens here. I think the other, the other potential factor here is that it seems like Seager could uh, stick with the Dodgers. Yeah. And typically there's a bit of a hometown discount if a guy keeps their own guy, even if it's in free agency. I don't know how much of that there could be. Uh, but there's no chance. <laughs> there's no chance Trevor Story stays in Colorado. So right. whoever gets him is going to be the highest bidder, no matter what. There's not going right. to be any sentimentality there, right. unless he decides that he really wants to go to Texas or something back yeah. home. Yeah, no, uh, he could. Yeah. But it's going to be. I'm with you. It's going to be real close between those two. Then a gap, and it's Correa, and then a gap, and it's Baez. Yeah. At least how it looks right now. We got five and a half months left of the season plus the playoffs. A lot could change, but that's what it's that's looking right. like. Yeah, and if Lindor were still in this conversation, I'm not sure he'd be the top one for me now because he's off to gold star too. Yeah, <clears throat> but he's off the table. Okay. Yes, <laughs> and I'm sure, regardless of the cold start or anything, the New York Mets are very happy to have him. Yep. So on that story note, uh, let's just—it's—it's uh, <laughs> it's funny. I thought this would be a short episode. We're at an hour. <laughs> um, <laughs> On that story note, let's let's touch on your article that you wrote 
mm-hmm. earlier, I, I believe this was last week, actually, yeah. um, about kind of kind of looking ahead at Trevor's story because he is really looking like that main trade piece uh, for the deadline this year, kind of kind of the Manny Machado of this deadline. Yeah, uh, a deadline that at this point is pretty unclear. We don't really have a list of names like we have in some recent years, where it's like, oh, these six or seven guys are really going to drive a market here. It's like Trevor Story, and then a bunch of question marks about guys like Bryant Scherzer, and then down the list. But Story seems pretty certain, and so you wrote an article kind of projecting out what his trade value might look like when we get to June, July, and, mm-hmm. and it's getting time to actually deal him. And, and you look, took a couple different looks at that, so. Yeah. What what's your conclusion there? So the takeaway is it's going to be a range between like 13 and 22, um, depending on a couple of factors. And um, and this is based on like preseason projections, by the way. So I haven't factored in anything he's done. He's off to a little bit of a cold start, but I'm not terribly concerned. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> so we talk about the October bonus that you basically get three. If you if you get him at the deadline at the end of July. You get August and September, plus if you're a contending team, as you would be if you're trading for Story, then you're you have eyes on October as well. So you eventually get that October bonus, that three month, which is free from your perspective because the league pays for it. So you get three months for the price of two, which anybody will tell you in retail is a good deal. Um, <laughs> and then um, so there's that, and there's also a factor of when you're measuring his performance, the higher marginal win value. So in other words. Colorado did not trade him. He'd basically just be, you know, playing out the string in August and September. Those wins, that win contribution wouldn't mean anything because they're not going anywhere. Whereas if he's on the Yankees or the Dodgers or whoever, you know, and that those wins make, you know, are much more valuable. So if you just use 10% as a benchmark, you increase his, his, um, his performance value is AFB uh, all the more so. So you basically have um, the way I crunch the numbers You've got like <clears throat> at that point, you know, assuming no changes, you've got roughly 19.8 in field value, minus only 6.2 in salary. So it gives you a floor of 13.6. But you also have to factor in the QO draft pick because Colorado, right now, if they kept him all year, you know, they could issue him a QO at the end of the year. Undoubtedly, as we just discussed, he would decline it, and so then they would get a draft pick, which, you know, assuming on the high side, assuming it's a position player, would be worth about nine million. So you have to add that nine million <clears throat> now, um, but there's a range there because it's basically a negotiation. And I'll credit you, Josh, for pointing this out to me in, in previous years, where I didn't think the draft pick in this scenario would matter as much. But you sort of argued that point, and I agree with you in retrospect that it would, because Colorado would say, "Okay, Yankees or whoever, you know, you're getting 13.6 million of field value, and." we're also giving up the draft pick. So we're going to ask for 22.6. So that's the ask. So so from their perspective, you know, that's what they would want. From the team's bid from the acquiring team's perspective, they just want those 3 months for the price of 2 with 13.6. So there's a range there between 13 and 22. And so if there's one if there's no bidders, obviously there would be no value. If there's one bidder, then they would say okay, 13.6. But if there's two, then the then the bidding goes up. So it really depends on how many teams are going to want him, and I think there's going to be a few um, at that point. Now we talk about the Yankees, as we referred to earlier. They don't want to go over the luxury tax, so then presumably to make that work, Colorado would have to kick in and cover his salary, but then they'd get you know much better prospect return. So you figure 22 plus whatever, what did I say, six six point two in salary, 
So they'd be looking at a 28.8. So that's a pretty decent prospect return. And the Yankees could do that. They could do that. They could throw in a David Garcia or, you know, um, a package like Pittsburgh got for Tyone with a little bit more, you know, something like that, um, and not have to pay his salary. I could see that happening. <clears throat> um, you know, and but who knows who else would, you know, the, I mentioned the Reds and the A's. Um, they'd probably have to go to their ownership at that point to to even afford because they're small budget teams that to, to cover the 6.2 in salary left. But maybe at that point it's okay because more people have been vaccinated, more people come to games, the revenue is going up. Maybe the owners would decay it, you know. So there's I, w- I wouldn't want to run. Both of those teams need shortstop upgrades, and um, you know the A's don't have a great farm. The Reds a little better, but still not that much. You know, it's a it's still a pretty high prospect cost to pay for them plus the 6.2 but you know it's not you know i've seen billy bean do it you know um especially when he feels like it's his last shot which may be the case in oakland so um so there's a few scenarios my point is that as long as you've got a couple of bidders i think he'll go for the high side somewhere in the 22 range you know assuming the cash is you know moved as well but it could go even higher than that if colorado kicks it in so i think Colorado's in a pretty good position, you know, and if story starts hitting better than his projections, it'll be even higher right now. He's a little under that, but I think he's a good enough athlete. It'll even it out. Yeah. I think that's that kind of range there, the way you describe the range right now. And in this article of kind of, this is what their ask would be. This is what the Yankees would want to pay. They'll meet somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. I think that's super interesting, a really great way to frame it because on the site, obviously, for every player, we have their median surplus value as well as the low and the high. And it's very easy to look at those three numbers and say that that's just kind of an error bar there. And it yeah. is to an extent because we, we recognize that none of our numbers are perfect. This is all these are all kind of made up numbers in a way. <laughs> They're made up with a with a with a very true and tested uh, tried and true. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> tried and true uh, model. It's been very successful. But that 10.5 number isn't something you can track. Like you can track the number of, uh, I'm sorry, I'm looking at Max Scherzer surplus right now. That 10.5 number isn't a number you can track necessarily the way you can track how many strikeouts he has in a season because it's very dependent on a fixed number in his salary right. that you can track and an estimated number in his field value, his adjusted right. field value. And so I, I think even even myself when i look at these numbers i see that low median high is kind of the error bar but in reality a large part of that is this kind of range that you're talking about where there is this kind of ideal return for one team based on their position because the rockies are going to market it as stories worth 12 plus the eight or nine of the draft pick so that's what we want that's what they're going to market it as but in reality they don't really care (laughs) <laughs> it doesn't matter to the 2021 Colorado Rockies whether they get the, that 13.6 million of value from Trevor Story because they're going to finish in last either way. So obviously they're going to hold this price for him because many teams want him. That's what he's worth. There's going to be a bidding war, but it realistically doesn't. He's not worth. He's worth that, but it doesn't actually. I, I don't know if I'm conveying this well. <laughs> he, he's not actually going to move the needle much for Colorado on the field. So they can say that, oh, this is what he's worth to us, is what he'd perform on the field plus this draft pick. 
But you can kind of call the bluff there, and that's really what happens is, yeah, no, he's right. actually not worth a lot to you on the field because you're not going anywhere. You're not going to make the playoffs. So what if he wins a couple games for you that's actually going to hurt you because you'll get a lower draft pick? <laughs> um, and so they can say, no, we only want to pay him what he's worth. And that's where you have that kind of sliding scale where they kind of meet in the middle somewhere. And that's not always directly in the middle, which is where this kind of low, median, high estimate comes from is that it could be anywhere within this range and maybe even slightly outside of it. Um, so that's, that's, I think that's just an interesting way to frame it that I honestly hadn't thought much about <laughs> until this article, but it, it makes no, a world it, of sense. Yeah. And so, and I, I, I make a point that it's sort of like a stock market transaction. Every stock uh, sale is a negotiation between the bid price and the ask price. Um, in um, markets where there's less uh, liquidity, then that gap is higher, and and that's the case in baseball. It's a it's essentially a barter system with very little liquidity. There's only you know it's not like you have thousands of potential buyers and thousands you know you've got one seller and maybe a couple of buyers in a barter market. So it's very sort of old fashioned in that sense. So you're going to have a wide gap sometimes between the bid and the ask. Um, but that's essentially any any market's going to have that. Just some are more efficient than others. Baseball is very inefficient, so you're going to have that inefficiency. It just really depends on who ponies up for the highest bid. And the other point I mentioned, it's sort of a blind auction. You don't really know. You know, the seller doesn't have any obligation to tell you, oh, the Reds are bidding this and the Yankees are bidding that. Yeah. Like they just have to guess, right? You know, and work it out. So they're going to take the best offer. So it's effectively a blind auction as well. So Colorado is in the driver's seat in that instance. Um, you know, so as long as there's multiple bidders, you know, they'll take the highest one, you know, and you just have to sort of, in, in effect, it causes a little bit more tendency to overbid because you don't know if you're the Yankees, what the Reds would be bidding or whoever. So, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta know that you're going to skew a little higher. So that's why I think he's going to go on the high end of the range. That's kind of where I ended up. <clears throat> on that note, would you like to head on to our trades of the week? Yeah, sure. So we got two this week because we anticipated a short episode. Uh, but it looks like we're still going to come in under the hour and a half mark. So we, we can go ahead and stick with both of these. Uh, let's let's start with this first one between the Red Sox and the Marlins. Uh, this is from user The Trade Machine. So <laughs> aptly named. Uh, thank you very much for the submission. And so this has outfielder Starling Marte, who we have at three and a half million in surplus value, headed to the Boston Red Sox. In exchange for left-handed pitcher Chris Murphy, we have it three million, and right-handed pitcher Ryan Zephyrjan. Sure, mm. Zephyrjan. <laughs> Zephyrjan. I have no idea. Ryan Z. Uh, we have him at half a million in trade value, so it, this evens out perfectly. Three and a half for each. As far as upvotes, downvotes. Uh, right now, the Red Sox have 23 up, five down. So clearly. People are liking it there, and the Marlins have 11 up, 18 down, so not as popular on that one. Uh, as far as my take here, I'm not a huge fan of this. I don't believe in the Red Sox in 2021. I think this has been kind of a mirage. I think in three or four weeks we're going to see that division looking a lot more like it should with maybe the Blue Jays and the Yankees fighting for that top spot, the Rays kind of hanging around. The Red Sox might have a little something in the tank, but they're – they're the third or fourth best team in that division, in my opinion. Uh, so I don't know if I don't know if this will be a reasonable trade for them once we get to the deadline. Plus, Marte is hurt right now, 
Mm-hmm. Plus, the Marlins just seem to love Marte, and I think they think they can sneak into the playoffs. So unless they're mm-hmm. totally out of it at the deadline, he might be a guy that they just hang on to because they love him so much. And if this is the return they're going to get for him, I think they'd rather just ride it out. So, I mean, I, I understand I understand the proposal, and I understand the upvotes and downvotes on each team. Uh, I, I agree that this would be a, a pretty solid pickup for the Red Sox, all <clears> things considered. <throat> And this would be not the best for the Marlins, all things considered. So I'm I'm not a huge fan of this one. I generally agree with you. I think um, a couple of things. Um, we have a lot of Red Sox fans on our site, and they're delighted that the Red Sox are competitive, <laughs> surprisingly so. And so I, it's sort of a breath of fresh air to say, hey, what if the Red Sox were buyers again? And um, so I just thought it'd be fun to put that up. Um, and a few people are thinking that way. I do agree. I think they're going to fall off at some point. But to, to their credit, Fangraphs right now has their playoff odds at 53.5%. So it's potentially not a mirage. And I think you get, you're also getting some believers in, you know, Heim Bloom as a, as a master tactician, I think. You know, a few other things. Verdugo is is playing very well, as we all knew he would, because he's been he's been a, a top prospect and a good hitter. Um, J.D. Martinez is hitting again. Like they're they're clicking on some fronts. The pitching is still very suspect, though. Although Matt Barnes is great in relief so far. Um, you know, they've got a few things that are sort. Of, it sort of feels like it's the 90th percentile outcome after the first month, and it's going to revert down to the the 50. You know, after a couple of months. But you're you know okay. Give them credit for their you know they're playing at the top of their their ability, I think, right now. So it's fun. I, I, I don't agree with you. Yeah, I mean, they I got, don't disagree they got, with you uh, rationally. Uh, yeah. They got plenty of talent there, and I'm not trying to I'm not trying to dunk on any on any Red Sox fans that are kind of enjoying this little run. I, I think it's it's fun, <laughs> and it's it's the more competition we get in that division, the more entertaining it's going to be for everyone. Um, yeah, and but... they're also enjoying the Yankees' uh, <laughs> flop so far, so uh, it's very interesting. Yeah, to this right now. <laughs> yeah, but just just looking at the rotation there, uh, do you believe in any of these five guys? I, I mean, Nady Evaldi's always been one of those stuffed guys. He was obviously very good for Boston during their World Series run. Uh, but he's been very hit or miss since, had some injuries. Eduardo Rodriguez, he didn't pitch at all last year because he had a myocarditis, uh, Mm -hmm. kind of a COVID after effect there. So he's looked all right in his first couple starts out, but who knows how much he's got in the tank. Garrett Richards has been kind of a mess. It's only been four starts, but not what you like to see there from a guy who already was pretty volatile, kind of like Ivaldi. Nick Pavetta, if you're talking about volatility, that's your guy. Although, <laughs> then, though, some people have said he's found a new gear and they've maybe turned him around. So watch him. He's actually on yes. my watch list. <clears throat> he's, uh, this is like my last season on him. Okay. <laughs> it's, Fair enough. I, I've been, I, I was a big Pavetta guy early on and then he jockeyed me back and forth every season in Philly. And this is this is the end of the line for him in, in, in my eyes. Yeah. Uh, and then Martin Perez, capable fifth guy. But if your first four guys are already that uncertain, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I I don't know how much I believe in that. I don't know how much I believe in the offense. The bottom half of that lineup is pretty rough. Yeah. And, and there's there's some other spots that aren't the greatest either. <laughs> I no. mean, Verdugo, Verdugo, Martinez, Bogarts, Devers is a fine yeah. middle of the order. Everyone else is pretty suspect. I agree. 
Um, you so got a I, couple I, role players and yeah, and guys who like yeah. Cordero who's never really put it together, Renfro who uh, a little below average, you know. So and who knows what Dahlbeck is? Probably just a TTO guy. So uh, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And the farm is not great either. I think it's going to take them a while, but. It's a little bit, it reminds me a little bit of the Giants where, like, they're making noise even though they're rebuilding, like, because they've cycled through a few guys and maybe they'll make a little noise, maybe be sort of in it, you know, but that really <laughs> comes alive, you know, but I don't expect a whole lot. For whatever it's worth, I don't, uh, I think that's a good comparison, actually, Giants and Red Sox. They're probably both 500-ish teams mm-hmm. in my eyes where they're on this kind of hot streak right now, but there's more talented teams in the division that give it a full season. These are the Dodgers and Padres are going to beat up on the Giants. The Yankees and Blue Jays and maybe even the Rays are going to beat up on the Red Sox eventually. Maybe not to the full extent that the Dodgers are I'm foreseeing just going to abuse the Giants because they're going to abuse everyone. Yeah. Uh, but they're, they're going to hit a rough patch in these coming weeks. I'm feeling yeah, uh, I, I don't, so I don't trust either of those guys as playoff teams. If I had to pick one of them, it's probably the Giants sneaking into that second wild card spot. But Actually, I don't even know. I might, I might not believe that. I mean, when you got, when you're kind of considering that the first wild card spot is pretty locked up by whichever one of San Diego or the Dodgers that doesn't win that division, mm-hmm. I don't know if the Giants have any chance to be the next best team in the National League. But yeah, if you figure the Mets and the Braves are still real, yeah. you know, and then you got whoever wins the NL Central, um, then yeah, not much. And, and there's a chance for. I think we all we both agree that the NL Central and pretty much everyone agrees at this point is pretty mediocre. Yeah. But if the Brewers and the Reds are both playing maybe a little bit over their heads, maybe get on a couple hot streaks, one of them could win the division. The other one could take advantage of playing a couple mediocre teams like the Cubs and the Pirates and the Cardinals so often mm-hmm. that maybe they run up their win total and sneak into a wild card spot. Wouldn't be the most surprising thing. Right. Okay. Not not all win totals are created equal, as the American League Central has taught us the last yes. handful of years. Yes. <clears throat> all right, let's move on to this last trade here, and this one's from Eagles 11, and it's between the Blue Jays and Rockies. Just straight out the bat, I'm liking this one a lot more. So it's mm-hmm. it's sending right-handed pitcher John Gray, who we have at 7.2 million in trade value, to the Toronto Blue Jays. In exchange for, is he a right-handed pitcher? Yeah, right-handed pitcher Adam Klofenstein at four and a half million in trade value and shortstop Revelkin. Yeah. No, Rekelvin. Yeah. Man, why can't these guys just be named like John? <laughs> <laughs> Rekelvin de Castro. Uh infielder, three point six million dollars in trade value. So John Gray feels like he's one of those another one of those inevitable trade pieces. I've listened to a couple guys talking about the Rockies, uh, a couple beat writers and they all kind of agree that if if they were going to lock up Gray, they would have done it by now. There's also not a ton of incentive for Gray to stick around there since the way that Coors Field has kind of jockeyed him around the last couple seasons. I think he might just want to go find somewhere stable in free agency. Yeah. Uh, and, he's, and he's off to an interesting little start to the season here. So I, I think there's a lot to like there. He's one of those guys that kind of falls into that... Um, that mix of guys that teams like the Astros have been targeting for years now where it's the stuff and we'll, we'll make that last adjustment and suddenly he clicks and he's an ace. Like he's, he's in that category for sure. And and so the blue Jays need some of that frontline type rotation help. And if all they have to give up here is a a couple pieces, a couple decent pieces from a pretty strong farm system, that's not going to, it's not going to hurt too much losing these two guys. I think they pulled the trigger there. And, And for the Rockies, you can maybe argue 
they'd prefer to sub up De, sub out De Castro with another pitcher or sub out both of these guys with a better pitcher uh, mm-hmm. because you know you know Colorado always needs pitching. Yeah. But I, I think this is a pretty fair return. Klaffenstein's a kind of interesting, maybe not the best stuff in the world kind of guy, but one of those makeup pitchability type guys. Mm-hmm. And I, I honestly don't know a whole lot about De Castro, but. Uh, I don't think they can expect too much more than this for yeah. a guy with the kind of track record of Gray. Yeah, he's one of the young uh, international sort of lottery ticket guys with some upside. Um, so, okay. Um, first of all, I think John Gray fits in. You wrote an article about the, the Blue Jays and their pitching and how they're getting guys like Steven Matz and Robbie Ray. And to your point, you know, guys with some stuff who just need an, an extra sort of extra twist on the, you know, just tighten it a little bit more, tighten the screw, and I think maybe they can get them over the hump. Um, John Gray fits that mold perfectly, I think. So um, I think they could use that uh, in, in Toronto uh, to complement that team as they go on a run. The ratios here, everybody seems to agree. Um, at this moment, 17 up votes for the Blue Jays, nine against nine down. Uh, Rocky's getting 18 up against 12 down. So it seems like a fair deal for both sides. I think most of our users know the Rockies need to rebuild. Most of them know they need to get rid of John Gray. Most people know the Blue Jays are pitching. So this one's a no-brainer, I think. You know, I think it just makes all all sense in the world. <clears throat> yeah, so, I, I like yeah. it a lot. Great job, Eagles 11. And uh, I think everyone seems to agree with us. Like you said, uh, I, I will take a little bit of credit for the Stephen Matz thing, too. He, he's been pitching very well this okay. season. <laughs> Patch on the back. Although <laughs> it was one of those where I, I hadn't recognized it until after the team made the move. So obviously okay. the Blue Jays were on it before I was. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but for now, I'm feeling I'm feeling good about almost everything I wrote in that article. A couple guys on there aren't, aren't quite doing it, but. <laughs> All right. This has been a, this has been a bit of an episode. <laughs> we made it through yet another one without too much to go on, huh? We did, and I think we had some fun with it. It's it's always fun to kind of baselessly speculate about what's going to happen. Not all of this has been baseless. Things like your your story article very well researched. You did all the math and explained it all very well. But but things like the the shortstop contracts and, and all that kind of stuff. It's fun. It's fun to speculate a little bit, especially yeah. when there's no real consequence, because we're probably never going to listen to this again and hold ourselves accountable to these predictions. We're not, if some listener wants to track all our predictions and tell us who's right more often, go for it. Uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll just have to, we'll have to see as, as July comes around and then as the off season comes around for those shortstops. Yeah. But it's been a good one. And I think we're ready to wrap this one up. So that'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. I know this one came out a day later than usual, but we are sticking on this every other week's schedule. So we'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more off-season news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the season. Thanks, John. Thanks, Josh.